0: Good morning. This is our third week in the study of Psalms, and what we're doing is looking at the various ways in which Psalms, in different particular Psalm units, like Psalm 1, Psalm 8, and Psalm 9, speak to the various seasons of life that we experience. The reason why we love the Psalms so much is that like a good friend or a good counselor, they empathize. They understand what we're feeling. They really reflect sometimes what we're thinking. And when you read the Psalms, um, you can often see yourself or what you feel and go, yeah, that's, that's how it is. That's how I feel. Psalm chapter one is where we were two weeks ago. And that was the beginning of the entire study identifying for us the two paths, the path of the wicked and the path of the righteous. Psalm 8 was last week where we saw David say, "How, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. You set your glory above the heavens. And then what is man that you are mindful of him? This amazing contrast between God's infinite glory and the humiliation of really what it means to be a human being. Now today in Psalm chapter 9, we're going to examine the whole concept of gratitude and thanksgiving and uh, frankly look at it, I think, from a little bit of a different angle. We hear in verse 1, David say, I will give thanks to the Lord with the whole heart. And what I want to suggest to you today is that David is talking about a different purpose for thank you. You see, thank you is what every good parent should teach their kid to say, right? And as parents, you work on this pretty hard. You know, your grandma and grandpa do something nice, or someone does something nice, and and, and, and you say to that kid, now say thank you. Look them in the eyes and say thank you, thank you. And you, you work on this response of you've received something kind, and so therefore the child or any appropriate human being responds with a statement of gratitude, thank you. So in response to what's happened, this thank you comes out. What you see in verse 1, though, is not really that. David is not just saying thank you because he's grateful. This is really important. He is saying thank you because he is hurting. So he's saying thank you not just because he can trace the good hand of God... He's saying thank you because he's in pain. So his gratitude is both the means of praising God for his past actions, but also his gratefulness is infusing hope into a oppressed heart. Or you could put it this way. What's going on here is that David is looking to praise God for the past, And that will lead him towards trust in the crucible. So what I want to show you today is there is a direct connection between your statement of, I will give thanks to you with all my heart, and the infusion of God's grace into your soul when you are really in the crucible of oppression and pain and suffering. And so for some of you, this is a really important message because I'm going to give you a roadmap through God's word as to how you're going to navigate the next number of months of your life. For some of you, this is going to be the missing link for how to think about some really bad stuff that's happened to you in the past and some people who've really done you wrong and what do you do. And, and you're going to hear David say things that you've always wanted to say but didn't know how to say them. And in that respect, this is a really helpful psalm. So we're going to look at two things, the the, the praise for the past and then trust in the crucible and then figure out how all this relates to our lives. So if you take Psalm 9 and 10, they really should be probably put together. The reason is they're an acrostic, which means that the first letter of the first word of particular sections follows the successive order of the Hebrew alphabet. In other words, that the, the psalm really has one message, and it, all of the, the parts are trying to fit into the whole. And what you'll find in this psalm is a, a beautiful collection of both praise and trust, of both pain and hope. As David wrestles through, how do you think rightly when you feel like you've been done wrong? Notice, first of all, in verse 1, this intentional focus that David has where he highlights praise for God's actions. Look at what it says. It says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. What's going on here is that David is echoing what we find in Deuteronomy 6, 5, the Shema of Israel, this singular rallying cry for the people of God and for their trust in Yahweh God, where it says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And what David is saying here is that with all of his heart, He is decisively determining that he will thank God. My guess is, and we'll see this in a moment a little bit further, that what's going on in David's soul is he has a divided heart. That He has a right side of his heart and a left side of his heart. He's got two things going on at the same time. He has great and lofty thoughts of God, and he also has things that he's really struggling with God. Like, why aren't you doing something on this? And he he has this sort of uh, schizophrenia of soul where he's bouncing back and forth between fear and then trust, and then trust and then back to fear. You ever have that? You have a great time in the Word. You 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 you. you behold the beauty of who god is you come out of your quiet time you're like a glow with the presence of god and then 15 seconds later you're angry at your kids you're like how does this happen right or you 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 commit something to the lord you lay it down at his feet god i trust you i give this to you and you're free for like 45 seconds and then the fear comes back again right and it's this battle right and some days you go to bed exhausted because you fought as to who you're going to listen to your flesh your heart your worry your fears are what the Word of God says. And so I think what's happening here is that David is determining, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. The word thank and recount are really important words. The word thank is the same word that's translated as confess in other psalms. For instance, in Psalm 32, 5, where David talks about confessing his sin. But in Psalm 9, the word doesn't mean confess sin, rather it means to confess or to acknowledge or to profess the Lord's actions. So what is David doing here? He he says, I am going to confess that when I look back at my life, I see the Lord's hand all over the place. And therefore, the word translated here as thank could also be rendered, and maybe even better, as the word praise. Because David isn't just thanking the Lord, like going, thanks for this, thanks for that, thanks for this, thanks for that. Or he receives things, he's like, thanks, thanks, thanks. No, what David is doing is he is taking this divided, bifurcated heart into the presence of the Lord, and he is saying, heart, we will give thanks to the Lord for all of his wonderful works. We will recount to him all of his wonderful deeds. He is praising his God for what he has done. Further, the word recount is equally as important. It is the Hebrew word so par, and it is used generally of mathematical activities. It's the same word that God uses when he talks to Abraham in Genesis 13 or 15, when he says, number the stars, so shall your offspring be. In other words, he says, look at the sky and count them. Abraham, count them. And so the idea is that In Psalm 9, David, like numbering the stars, is going to number off God's wonderful deeds. He's going to think about the beautiful things that God has done, the mighty deeds of God, and like the previous statement, that he is going to thank him for what he has done with his whole heart. Here, in this little phrase, he is going to consider the innumerable ways in which God has been gracious. He's going to meditate, he's going to think about, and then as a result, verse 2 brings to summary what David is doing. He says... I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praises to your name, O Most High. So, at this point, we have no idea what's going on in David's life. We'll see this more clearly in a few moments, but right now we don't have any idea what's really going on in his life. But the key that we see in verses 1, 2, 3, and 4 is this idea that David takes his hurting heart into the presence of the Lord and his aim, get this, is to get his focus off of his circumstances and onto the living God. Listen, that is so elementary and so basic and so important, but that is the first step that many of you miss. And that is that you live your life based upon the circumstances. So the answer to your question, how did your day go, honey, is often a dangerous question because you begin to recount all of the circumstances in your life. And if you simply rest and talk about and linger in all of the circumstances of what's going on in your world, life can be pretty depressing, can't it? And so what David does is he gets his focus off of his circumstances and onto God's gracious acts. So secondly, there's this faith element that comes in, this insurmountable faith. In fact, in verses 3 to 8, we get a better sense of what's going on in David's life. What we find here is that there are some enemies who apparently are opposing David. They're, they're, they're getting him, and they're hurting him. In fact, if you were to look ahead to chapter 10 you'd see a number of descriptions of what this person or these people are like. Here's a few descriptors. Uh, in verse 2, it describes them. This is chapter 10. These people as arrogant. And then they're boastful in verse 3. Verse 4, they're godless. Verse 5, they are prosperous. Isn't that annoying? I mean, it's, not, it's, just, it's bad enough that they're arrogant and they're boastful and they're godless, but then they, they're like successful. I mean, that doesn't drive you nuts. I mean, like at least God make them hit by a bus or something, right? But no, no, they're just walking around, big puffed-up chest, big head, talking all sorts of stuff, being godless. And what's really tough is it looks like they're getting away with it. That that just that really burns us, doesn't it? And and then overconfident. What's even worse? Not only they're prosperous, but they're like, ah, see, I, I did all these things, I acted this way, and there's nothing coming my way that's bad in fact David goes even further to put full of color on this in chapter 7 listen to this he describes the wicked person this way his mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression under his tongue are mischief and iniquity he sits in ambush in the villages in hiding places he murders the innocent his eyes stealthily watch for the helpless he lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket he lurks that he may seize the poor he seizes the poor when he draws him into his net the helpless are crushed sink down and fall by his might he says in his heart God is for he has hidden his face; he will never see it. Apparently, David's pretty worked up, right? And apparently, these people are pretty cruel. And so, David sees here two disturbing things that all of us are unfortunately familiar with. Or let me put it this way: if you're not unfortunate with someone who's like this, then either you're really young, or you are this person. Okay, so because there are awful people in this world. And there are people do ter- terrible things, and it's really frustrating when it seems like they're getting away with it. And so David expresses what I think all of us would be familiar with, and that is that it's awful when the wicked do outrageous things. I mean, you just look at the world and people around you, and you're just like, how in the world can you say that? How can you act like that? And there's just outrageous acts of wickedness. And then to make it worse, the second thing is there's no immediate justice or judgment. Maybe one thing, if somebody said something just awful and immediately, bam, God struck them dead. You'd be like, oh yeah, sweet, so that's what they deserve. You're like, okay, that makes sense. But the fact that they can say it and then they get away with it and then do it again and again and again and they live as if there's no coming judgment, that really irks a sense of injustice within us. David sees that what's happening is awful. But even worse, they're getting away with it. Th- those are two very powerful emotions. And by the way, that's where our own anger and sinful desire for revenge tends to sneak in. Because it's one thing for someone to do something awful, but then they get away with it. Well, sometimes we just can't stand that. So we take our own pound of flesh. We get our own revenge. We act as though we are God. And so David is expressing here the pain that life is going to produce. Then look at verses 3 and 8. 3 through 8 rather. David is looking forward to a sort of coming judgment. Notice, I'm going to bring to summary here what he says in these verses. In verse 3, David says that God will personally rescue him. His presence, God's presence, will be the decisive moment. See, David longs for God just to show up. All these people who are like, God isn't real. God doesn't exist. God doesn't care. And all of a sudden, whoop, there he is. They're like, oh, I didn't mean that. That's what he wants. He wants for God to show up. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. God, show up. Do something about this. Verse four, for you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. David knows that God will bring ultimate justice. In fact, even the verb forms that he uses anticipate that God's justice and his judgment are not only going to come, but they're already set in motion. Verses five and six. God has destroyed entire nations in the past. He's caused them to be wiped off the face of the earth to be remembered no more. And he anticipates that being done to his enemies. That one day God's enemies and David's enemies are going to be completely defeated. And David can't wait for that day. Verse 7. Despite the chaos and evil on the earth, God sits on his throne and has an eternal reign. David knows this. Even though things are falling apart down here, you are on your throne, God. Verse 7, but the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. Remember, David isn't saying these things because they're academic truths. He's saying them because his heart needs to hear them. He needs to be reminded in the midst of the chaos of the world that he sees. No, God is still on the throne. He's still ruling. He's he's still in charge. And then verse 8, from this throne, God will bring judgment based upon true justice, true righteousness, and uprightness. Verse 8, verse 8. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. So, here's what's going on. In the midst of some kind of personal pain, probably some kind of personal attack, David turns to praise. Don't miss that. In the midst of personal pain, he turns to praise. And what he does is he specifically reflects on what God has done in the past. Looking back, he praises God and anticipates that the judgment of God, the deliverance that's going to come through God, is already in motion. So he looks at the past, and he's confident that God is going to do something because of the kind of God that he has been in the past. And then he makes it really personal in verse 9. He calls God a fortress. I love that imagery. Verse 9 and 10 are great verses. That would to be wonderful if... If you're kind of in a crucible moment, it would be a great passage for you to memorize. It says, "The Lord, Just just savor these words. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. Any oppressed people here today? Anybody just like, I'm just beat down, I'm weary, I live in a home, it's just awful, my thing at work is just intolerable, my kids, it's just all encompassing, hardship going on. Anybody who's oppressed? Well, this text tells us that the Lord is a stronghold for you. And then it goes even further. A stronghold in times of trouble. Verse 10, beautiful verse. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. It's great. Look at verse 11. Sing praises to the Lord. I mean, if you know the Lord is a stronghold, then sing praise to him who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the people his deeds, for he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. So understand that David is talking here not about a physical fortress, he's talking in metaphor about a figurative fortress. He's talking about being able to run into God's protection, and the basis of that protection is the name of God. So David rests his hope on God's personal care, believing that he will ultimately deliver him, and the sum total of David's confidence in this fortress is captured in those who know your name. So you can run into the name of God and receive safety. Now, if you're a thinking New Testament believer, meaning you've received Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have to hear the rumblings of the gospel in Psalm chapter 9. Because there is this concept that David's enemies in the Psalms are not entirely clear, but yet in the New Testament, it makes very clear that man's greatest enemy is sin. The greatest oppressor in life is not people, And not even the devil. The greatest oppressor in life is the reality of sin, both inside and around us. It creates a a groaning within creation that sin in us, this darkened heart, becomes the defining problem of human beings, and as a result, they are under the constant judgment and curse of God. Enter Jesus, who comes, and in order to provide a sufficient atonement for these people under the curse of sin, dies on the cross, and then here it comes. And those who put their trust in him are safe under his blood. That's a fortress. That's a stronghold. They are forgiven of their sins. In fact, there's an incredible parallel in Romans 10. Notice how you go into Christ in the name and you are safe. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. What does it mean? You're inside the fortress. You're, you're under the protection. You're, you're under the blood. You're covered. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Skip ahead. To the end, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So there's a safety in the name of the Lord. There's a safety in who and what He is. Meaning that Jesus becomes the ultimate fortress. That He becomes the perennial stronghold for those who flee to Him in order to find relief. Not just from physical oppressors or people who are oppressors, but they flee first and foremost for the oppression of sin's guilt and the trouble of a darkened heart. And the effect of that is that when you face oppression on the outside and people who are mean and cruel and wicked and you look at all the evil around you, where do you go? You go back to the gospel. You come back to this fortress of Christ. You come back to him, which is why we just celebrated the Lord's table. Not just to look back. You look back so that when things come in the future, you can go back and say he was faithful there, he'll be faithful here. I can trust Him there, I can trust Him here. He covered me here, He'll cover me there. If He can take care of my sin, He can take care of my kid, my spouse, my boss, my neighbor, my business partner. The hymn writer put it this way, My faith has found a resting place, not in device or creed. I trust the ever living one. His wounds for me shall plead. Say the chorus with me. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Is it enough? Is it it really enough? Is it enough? So that when in the midst of hardship, can you go back and say, it's enough for me that you die. You are a fortress and those who put their trust in you are not forsaken. Because your heart will tell you, no, 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 this is too much, this is too hard, no one's hurt like this. What you're feeling here is more than anybody else can bear. And those are lies that you are believing. And you have to come back to this reality, it is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. And when you doubt and fear, enough for me that Jesus saves. This ends my fear and doubt. A sinful soul, I come to him, he'll never cast me out. Say it. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. You need to preach that truth to your heart. It is enough that he died. It is enough that I'm in his blood. It is enough that I am in the fortress. This is good news. And this cross was not meant to be a static symbol remembered in the past. It was meant to be something that you could trust even now. This is how praise in the past becomes the living reality today. Now, trust in the crucible. Remarkably, David begins to build to a crescendo of praise to God. And we find in verse 13 that David expresses his concern He says, be gracious to me, O Lord. This is the first thing David has asked. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death that I may recount your praises in the gates of the daughter of Zion, that I may rejoice in your salvation. So David is asking here, God, be concerned about me. God, be gracious to me. God, David wants God to see what his enemies have done. He said, see my affliction from those who hate me. So David wants what any hurting person wants. They want deliverance and they want justice. And so he asked God, God, be concerned. Nothing wrong with crying out to God. God, be concerned about my plight. And then the horizon of his focus shifts again to future consequences. Look at verses 15 to 18. He's looking at the fate of the wicked. He looks beyond the circumstances of his own life and his request of concern from God. And he looks to the ultimate destiny of those who oppose God. Look at verse 15. David longs for this day. The nations have sunk in the pit they have made, in the net they hid for their own foot has, they've been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol as all the nations that forget God. See what he wants? He wants them to be caught in their own devices. He wants it to backfire on them, and he wants long-term judgment. And so what David is hoping for is that the wicked will get they do he knows it's only a matter of time until the wicked are punished look at verse 18 for the needy are not always Forgotten notice david feels a little bit forgotten But he's preaching to his own heart for the needy shall not always be forgotten and the hope Of the poor shall not perish forever So what david is doing is he's taking these moments when he feels like he's been forgotten Situations when he feels like there is no hope and he talks in such a way that this will not be my lot forever, I will talk in faith that one day, God, you're going to make this right. Oh, how many times in your lifetime have you said that? God, you're going to make this right. You're going to make this right. You're going to have to settle this. One of my favorite sermons was given by Jonathan Edwards after he was kicked out of his church, and remarkably, they let him come back and preach one more time before he left. Now that's an interesting opportunity. What do you say to a church who's kicked you out if you have one last sermon to preach? It's really an interesting moment. And what he preaches on then is the judgment seat of Christ. And what he says is this, you can't be right and I can't be right. One of us is wrong, but at the end of the day, it's up to Jesus to sort it out. And that's a really great perspective to have. In that respect, he's free, and so are they. And yet they know one day, Jesus is going to really tell them, this is what was really going on. And so therefore, David has confidence. He concludes this psalm with a crescendo of praise to God in such a way that it almost sounds as if he commands God to action, as though he wants God to show them who he really is. Verse 19, Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. You know what he's saying here? Get him, God! He's so confident, the wicked will perish. God, get him! Sick him! Go get him! Arise, arise, O Lord. Let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let them tremble and be afraid. Let the nations know that they are but men. That's how he ends. He's like, God... Go get them. He wants for God to be seen in might and power. He wants for the wicked to know their place. And David is confidently calling God to set the record straight in order so that they would know who's really in charge. And what's beautiful here is David knows this is God's job, not his. I am so grateful that God does not hear all of your requests or mine for God to get them, If he, if you could pull the trigger on the get them button, right? Or, or push the get them button. You're like, okay, get them. Bang. And also chew. They were gone. So you'd have fewer neighbors, right? Uh, you'd probably be a, a lot less people at work, maybe have a few less members in your family and, and you'd be looking around and, and I might not even be here. You're like, that's a bad sermon. Get him. <laughs> and I'd be gone. So so here's the deal. The reason that I'm grateful that you don't have that power is because there's some of you who pray it over each other. So you got John who's praying, get Joe. Lord, get him. And Joe's praying, get John. And God's going to sort it all out. And if he had the ability, either John or Joe, to really push that button, that would be a scary reality. And so David is calling on God. Nothing wrong with that. Arise, O Lord! Let the nations know that you're God. Let them know that they are but men. At the same time, he is simply placing his confidence in God's ability to be God. So when David says, listen carefully, when he says, Arise, O Lord, what he's really saying is trust, David. Trust. When he says, Arise, Lord! He is, I think he's preaching to his own heart. Just trust, David. And this is, this is a beautiful call from a man who is hurting and wants the enemies of God and his own enemies, if they parallel, to be dealt with. There are very few more important words that you can say to your own soul when you are in pain than trust, Mark. Put your own name in. Just trust, Mark. Just trust that's why we love the Psalms so much, is because they speak so honestly to our own condition. David knows what it's like to have this, this bifurcated heart, where one moment he's filled with glorious praise, and the other he's like, but you, have you forgotten us? Hello, we're down here, we're suffering. They're boastful, they're proud, they're getting away with it. They say there's no God. Get him, Lord, get him! And David is putting his trust in God's ability to be God. The Psalm was so helpful. Let me just rehearse three things that I just really want to press into your soul. The first is this. Friends, listen, gratitude brings grace. Saying thank you to God is more than just an appropriate reaction to God's blessings. It is certainly that, but it's even more. Gratitude to God for his past actions brings an amazing flood of grace to our hearts as we remember what God has done in the past. So when you come to the Lord and say, God, I will thank you, and you start listing off all of the things that you could be grateful for, it's like oxygen begins to infuse your drowning soul. Because gratitude reminds us what we are really quick to forget, that God has been worthy of our trust, and he will continue to be worthy of our trust. And if you need proof, just look back at your life. Or as the hymn writer said, when upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, when you are discouraged, thinking all is lost, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. It's just amazing. You go back and you think, Lord, you've just been there over and over and over, and not the least of which is that you were there at the cross, you delivered me from my sin, but yet go all the other ways in which God has been merciful to you? so here's my question so where do you recount the mighty deeds of god in your life so the reason why i have these notebooks up here is because this is where i recount the mighty deeds of god these are 8 years worth of journals these have the deepest darkest moments of my life in them i told my sons that uh, when i die burn these right so just you, you got to promise me this got to go quick read them and then burn them uh, don't use any information in them whatsoever. Burn them. You know why? Because this is the journey of my soul. There's, there's, there's pain beyond pain, beyond pain, beyond pain within the pages of these volumes. And yet, you know what also is in here? God's grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. What's amazing, I read back in this one from 2004, and I was meditating, thinking about it's the awful season of hardship and pain. And you know what? I'm, I'm still here. I'm happy. I'm whole. Even in the dark moments, God still helped me to go all the way through them. And so the question is, where where do you recount the works of God? Because gratitude is not only saying thank you, it's a conduit for God to give you grace. Here's the second thing. Second thing is that on a regular basis, friends, you need a dose of vertical. What do I mean by that? I mean that every day you deal with horizontal issues. People, circumstances, problems, budgets, bills, people, sins. It's all coming at you all over the place. And you need a regular dose of the vertical reality to be able to bring your heart into the presence of the living God. And that's why prayer, private worship, corporate worship. I mean, isn't it great you can stand and sing and say, God, you are mighty to save and for a few moments... You really believe it. And you believe it when you go home, but then the reality of making lunch for your kids and dealing with their issues and, and a friend that needs a response on an email and all the things you've got to do this next week and all those things begin to pile on and before what? You're, you're mighty to save starts to go lower and lower. And you need to bump up on Sunday and go, You are mighty to save so you can make it the rest of the week. You need a regular dose of the vertical that on a regular basis with the Lord and the Word, you are brought to the heavenly places to be reminded that the name of the Lord is a strong tower and those who run in it are safe. And some of you, you feel deflated today, but the reason you feel deflated is because there is no vertical going on. And you're just, you're experiencing the early warning signs of a horizontally lived life. You were made to go vertical. And you need a regular dose of it. And then finally, and all oh, if I could just push this in to those of you who come to service today, either here or worship too, or those who will hear this online, that you would choose to make pain a platform for praise. One of the keys to walking through any difficult season is making the conscious decision that you will not allow painful circumstances or destructive people, or personal hardship to define you or take over your life. To say, this is hard, but this is not going to rule us. And that isn't just behavior modification. If you can say, instead, we're going to take this tear-filled, heart-wrenching, gut-kicking moment, and we are going to stand on this pain and say, I will recount your wonderful deeds. I will give thanks to you for all you have done. I will sing praises to you. I will exalt in you. Arise, O God. You exalt and you exalt in God by making pain not a platform for self-pity or an excuse for self-indulging sins, but instead as an opportunity to say, God, I need you and would you help me and I will praise you. Over and over, the psalmist calls us to preach to our hearts. Psalm 42. Why are you so downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. Some of you need to say this to your own soul. Your, your husband's been saying it to you. Your wife's been saying it to you. Your kids have been trying. A counselor's been trying to say this to you. You need to say this to your own soul. Take your soul by the scruff of its neck and say to it, "Why are you so downcast? Why are you in turmoil? Hope in God." And notice the connection with praise. I will yet praise Him again. My salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you. A change of job, a change of family, a change of relationship, a change of circumstances is not going to work. Instead, powerful God-centered praise creates that reality. So this is what David invites us to do. He invites us to look back and to gain perspective. He invites us to look up and gain perspective. That thanksgiving and gratitude has become a balm to a hurting and fearful heart. And understand, the same God who met David in Psalm 9 is the same God who wants to meet you today. The same God who delivered David over and over and over is the same God who can deliver you. It's the same God who delivered us through the shed blood of his son. And what this psalm invites us to do is to realize that, look, you got to get this in your soul, that praise for the past leads to trust in the crucible. If you will but turn your gaze from the circumstances of life and say, God, I can trust you, and I will trust you, and I choose today to say, Arise, O Lord, I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will give thanks to you with my whole heart. So, O risen Christ, who gives us the ultimate fulfillment of this passage, we thank you that in you we have ultimate trust and confidence. And I pray today that you would empower your people To make pain a platform for praise. Right now, make pain a platform for praise. In fact, College Park, while we are just wrapping up at the end here, I have on my heart those of you who are in the middle of a crucible today, you've come, and this is God's word for you, that you need to praise Him in the midst of your crucible. It is the only way out the only way for, your circumstances may never change but your perspective can if you choose to praise him and so today if you're in a crucible i'd like to pray for you you know this offering of thanksgiving was often given in israel when they would come and bring an offering they'd come to jerusalem and then say god i thank you they'd bring an offering and so what i'm going to ask you to do is to make an offering today of who you are and Invite you right where you are to stand and say, God, I'm in the crucible today, but I choose to trust. I stand today, whether here or in worship too, you do the same. Listening on this on the internet, pull your car off to the side of the road and just stop and stand and say, God, I choose to trust. I say, you are my God and I will give thanks to you with my whole heart. Stand right now, if that's where you're at. In the crucible, God, I trust you. Father, I pray for these, my brothers and sisters, both here in worship too, and will hear this message in other contexts, that right now you would pour out your grace, that as they look back and see the mighty hand of God in their life, that they will know that you do not abandon those who seek you, that you are a rewarder of those who seek you, and we release today vengeance, we release the getting of our own pound of flesh. We release the bitterness and the anger that can come from delayed justice. And we say, God, you arise when you see fit. You be God, you rule, you reign, you bring justice. And so God, looking back, we claim the reality of your work for us, believing that you will be faithful in our future. And so I pray for these struggling soldiers in this battle for belief. Lord, like the man on the side of the road, we believe, but help our unbelief. So give them faith and confidence and assurance. And now if you're seated next to somebody who's standing, you just reach out your hand and maybe grab their hand, put your hand somewhere on their back or their shoulder, somewhere that's close to them, and just agree with me with this prayer. Father, I pray for my brother and sister. I pray that you'd strengthen them and empower them with the full measure of the fullness of Christ. We acknowledge your power and their need today, and we agree with you. Help them, God. Hear their cry. Meet their need. And we pray this in the precious and the powerful name of the risen Christ. In his name, all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for coming today, College Park. If you need someone to pray with or talk with afterwards, these folks are here, all right? God bless you. I love you. Thanks for coming.